In this conversation, I had the pleasure of chatting with Marcus Burns, Portfolio Manager for Spheria Asset Management, a fundamental-based small-cap equity manager based in Sydney. Marcus's investment background includes a stint working for GLG Partners in London, one of Europe's largest hedge funds, as a portfolio manager for their global consumer-focused fund. Investing in illiquid and emerging markets, both from the long and short side during his time at GLG, has given Marcus a unique perspective on how to manage risk, which is critical when investing in small-cap Australian equities. One of the important character traits to successful investing over the long term is humility. When you've been doing it long enough, owning your fallibility helps you to reduce your poor decision rate and keeps you motivated to do the work required to sniff out opportunity. It was so clear from our conversation that Marcus's humility is central to his success. As an investor in small cap Aussie equities myself, I found this conversation most helpful, particularly regarding what pitfalls to avoid and how to find value in a market segment that often sells more dreams than reality. I hope you find as much value in the chat as I did. Enjoy. This is David Hobart from Beyond the Obvious, the podcast in search of unexpected insights for investment professionals. Marcus, thanks so much for coming on today. Uh, You're in such an interesting space, uh, being a small cap equity manager. You know, a lot of the uh, people that listen to this podcast are self-directed investors, and you know, a lot of people. That's the area in certainly in the Australian equity market that a lot of self-directed investors sort of dabble in, which is this you know micro to small cap equity space. So I'm I'm really grateful that you've taken the time to sit down and have a chat today, and I'm looking forward to you know getting into the juice of that. Uh, but before we do, I mean, perhaps we could talk just a little bit about your background in the first instance. So, what 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 was it that got you into investment management in the first place? Well, Dave, firstly, thank you for having me on your uh, on your show. And um, I've, as I said before, I feel privileged to be here. Um, look, it's an interesting background in a way. Um, I was um, a law graduate, and uh, like many other graduates coming out in the late in the early nineties, it was not a great time to be a law graduate, but um, I was drawn into finance and sort of economics and, and things mathematical as opposed to things legal when I, when, I, when I graduated. And so I ended up working for a firm called Procter & Gamble for a couple of years and um, that gave me my, my kickoff, my, my first career step and that was in finance and then in marketing of all things. And it wasn't until I had a dinner with uh, an ex-professor of mine at uh, university uh, who recommended a book that no doubt many of your listeners will have read called The Warren Buffett Way that um, I came across investing. And, uh, and once I'd read that book, I was literally hooked and um, I knew my, my path forward had to, be, um, had to be in the stock market somehow. So I, yeah, I, right. I, switched, I switched out of Proctor and I, I begged and borrowed and finally until someone, uh, someone took me on in, uh, in the funds management industry and I've, I've um, been there since, uh, since age 25 and loved it. Oh, good on you, Marcus. Yeah, it, it is a, it's a, well, not uncommon path, uh, when people read some of that age-old wisdom around value and what constitutes a you know a good company and a and, and valuation and uh, you know that does for some people that you know lights a bit of a fuse. You went and worked for GLG, which is you know, for people that aren't familiar is a well at one point in time was the biggest hedge fund in London. Uh, and I think they man they merged with Man Group. Is that right? More recently? Yeah, that's right. Well, yeah, uh, yeah. So, so you know, a hedge fund group 
GLG, you were what, what was it that you were doing there, Marcus? Well, David, I was um, I was uh, so after I, I joined Funds Management in Australia, I went across to London and um, eventually ended up at one of the Citigroup broking. And one of my clients there was um, was a guy who ran a consumer fund because um, I was I was focused on the consumer sector. Uh, working uh, for GLG. So um, we got on pretty well. He was actually, even though he lived in, in the UK for a long time, he was actually an Aussie. And so we had that, that sort of Australian connection. And eventually we, um, we teamed up as a, as a consumer duo working on um, global longshore consumer fund for GLG. And that was um, honestly a very exciting place to work. It was, uh, when was it, 2005 to 2008, sort of just before the GFC. And um, yeah, so it was, a, it was a hive of energy activity, you know, brains. Um, you know, great place to be for a couple of years when you're in your in your early to mid thirties. And um, and I and I had a great time there. Yeah. So, what was your sort of? I mean, you're in the consumer uh, focused investment universe. There was that uh, that was a global mandate in that consumer space, was it? It was, Dave. Um, we were pretty like we were pretty much to the European, US, and we drifted out into Asia a little bit. Um, certainly learned a few lessons around areas and countries that are a bit harder to invest in than, than some others. Um, yeah. uh, you know, places on the edge of Europe that you'd be familiar with are a little tougher to invest in because of their, um, shall we say, their circumspect respect for investors and, and, and external parties. Um, and obviously some Asian countries are, are great to invest in and, and others are a little more challenging. So we, you know, the great, one of the great things about that, that role was it was incredibly free. You were given us a mandate to really um, go forth and, and try and find alpha the best way you thought you could do it. And there was not, you know, there's oversight on risk, but there was not a lot of control or not a lot of, um, you know, direct interference with what you did as long as you were sort of maintaining certain controls around volatility and, and other risk metrics. So, you know, we went far field into Russia and to deepest Asia, and to Mexico, and, and um, you know, and, and I'm, you know, we learned some great lessons about, 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 you know, management teams in those countries, around you know, industry structures, around liquidity and how it can evaporate in, in really challenging times, as we, as we all know, um, um, and a whole bunch of other things that, that, that I think have informed, or hopefully informed, how, how, how I and the team now invest this area. Yeah, wow. Oh, there's so much inside of that, Marcus, and I'd love to dig into a whole bunch of it, you know, managing liquidity, you know, understanding, as you say, management teams. Like, there's a bunch of things I'd love to ask you about um, and in also short selling. Like, you know, how, how – how, and perhaps we could start with that. Like, it was a long short fund you were running for GLG. Like, h- how did you sort of go about framing short selling opportunities at, at that time? Well, that's a great question, David. And, and I'm, obviously, you have a, a lot of experience yourself on the short selling side. Um but I think we, we uh, well, as you know, and certainly my view on, on short selling is it's not simply the inverse of going long on a stock. I mean, the stock market likes to go up over time. Um, it's a very it's very positively disposed to rising because of you know, retained earnings by businesses and reinvestment of, of money uh, plus inflation. A whole bunch of things generally tend to, sque- to squeeze markets up at that, you know, seven, eight, nine percent a year over, over the long run. And so shorting requires. You know, and a dwightness to to move and 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 um, adapt, and and you have to be more flexible and and more of a trading mentality. I think on the short side, this is all my opinion, Dave. And yeah, there'll yeah, be sure. people, people out there who completely disagree and have got better views on shorting and probably more successful at shorting than I am. But you know, I would say that 
on the long side, you really want to find something that's got an incredible management team, you know, a decent moat around it, a long runway for growth, and, and, a, and a reasonable valuation when you get in. And, and then you want to be as patient as you can on the on the on the hold side to let that that business and management team do its best at compounding those earnings and their returns ultimately as a shareholder for a long period of time. On the short side, you're you're looking for are the very expensive businesses with some sort of catalyst that will you know devalue them, so they they miss an earnings quarter or they they really do a dumb acquisition or a dumb acquisition you know comes unstuck and then it gets you know it becomes clear to the marketplace what's going on. So that with you know highly geared, overvalued or, or fundamentally very weak very weak businesses where there is we were so looking at. Um, you know we would sometimes short indices just to give us something broader and less volatile. Um, but um, yeah, it, it's tough. You know, I remember one particular example where I was, you know, very, very high, highly convinced of a short. It was a Spanish company, and um, it, it was trading on many multiples of its peers. It, it, it um, had gearing. Um, the founders bought a couple of shares every single day. So there was a new announcement coming out saying they bought a couple of shares just to get the market excited by the by that fact they were con- constantly buying, although it was tiny amounts. Um, but it was basically a, a effectively a fraud, and um, that stock actually squeezed. You know, I bought it, we shorted it, sorry, and it squeezed up. And right at the GFC, that stock was kept rising. Um, and it wasn't until the day after Lehman's collapsed that that stock absolutely got incinerated. So, you know, that old Keynesian quote about the market can be irrational longer than you can stay solvent. There's, that's that's something you got to bear in mind when you're shorting. It's um, it is a it is a, it is a challenging and fickle. And stressful in my mind, um, you know, uh, and fraught activity. So you need to be very careful and, and nimble and good and patient. <laughs> and yeah. keep, keep it short, small. Um, yeah. but look, there'll, be, there'll, be, there'll be people out there, probably yourself included, who've done a great job shorting. It's just a very, um, it's 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 a very poor activity, and it distracts a lot from the long side too. So you have to bear that in mind. No, I think uh, I mean if you're bringing me into the equation, I've had a very patchy history with short selling markets, so uh, I find it a very difficult game. But I, I suppose the the reason for my question around it was um, uh, just in terms of how it current like that experience in shorting. Uh, how does it frame your thinking today? Because I mean, you're you're, you're a long only manager now inside that sphere. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, we we, we yeah. long only and back you know order cash. We don't. Uh, we're going short, thankfully. Um, like, how's it frame and how we think now? That's that's a good question. I think um, I'd say a couple of things. I mean, you know, uh, there was if you read any sort of books on the market, a lot of people say you know hedge funds and shorters are highly informed and um, and point to to potential weaknesses in stocks. And I, I've got to say, I, I I don't think that's correct. Um, I think sometimes that is factually factually correct. Um, you know, their hedge funds are full of smart, highly motivated, incentivized people to who seek out you know alpha in various forms, whether it be long or short or using options. So potentially, a, a large short activity on a stock is uh, is indicative of a problem. But but also, you know, back to your point earlier on, if if they're running long short mandates, they they have to short stocks, and um, that's where the problem lies. I think is that they end up being crowded into into some cases. You know, large positions on semi-obvious shorts that aren't, and they don't end up being that obvious. Or if there's a ma- massive change in the fundamentals, so they do raise capital or the gear, or there's a change in management team or a takeover, for example, any one of those, or a myriad of other positive catalysts, they're, they're all running for the for the, for the um, you know, run, running to cover the short at the same time. And so, you know, occasionally we'll find stocks where we think there's good potential. There has been a ch- or there has been a fundamental change that hasn't been recognised, and we will buy those on the long side and um, 
not not actually looking to squeeze shorts, but but conscious that there could be a, a big a big squeeze, and um, and it can be quite um, quite fun on the long side actually. <laughs> when, yeah, when, when there's a good squeeze, and, and you know, you anyway, know, it's not fun having someone hurting on the other side, but um, but shorters don't make too many friends generally, so. Uh, I guess that's one thing, and um, and being aware of when when you go in and the size you go into positions. If if there is potential for it to look like an interesting short, um, and you might come into a position, but be, be more modest uh, in your in initial positioning, conscious of the fact that you might get people out there looking to to short it aggressively for a variety of reasons because they, they they have to or they need to or they want the short and it looks like an obvious one, and so you might um, you know that they can they can really rule the stock for a period of time and and, and bring it down a long way. So. That could also be a good opportunity to, to, to use to accumulate. Um, and then finally, of course, back to the original point, I guess, you're sort of flagging. Sometimes they, they do actually flag an issue with a company. I mean, they're not always wrong. Um, and so if, there's, you know, if you think there's some, some smart people on the short side, it's at least worth covering off their, th their, you know, their thesis to understand what's going on and why you disagree with it. Um, it just tests your own thinking, which is healthy, I think. Yeah, interesting. On the long side. Yeah. So, Marcus, I thought maybe if you know we could get not not into the weeds, but certainly into a little bit um, a more of a discussion around specifically what you're up to now uh, in terms of your small cap investing. Are, are you able to kind of give a, a summary of the types of companies you look to invest in? You know, uh, you know the range of like the the sort of characteristics of the stocks you look at. Yeah, give us a bit of a sense of that, and we can then kind of dig into that a little bit more. Okay, sure. Um, look, we're, we're um, I mean, Dave, as you, as you probably know, we are a, uh, you know, a very fundamental style investor. We, we still believe in that, uh, that age-old Buffett quote about the stock market being a weighing machine um, long-term and a, a voting machine short-term. And so we, um, you know, we have three very simple pillars at Sphere. We, we look for businesses that have an ability to generate good free cash flow, um, preferably a history of Having done so, to prove that it's not just a theoretical, um, theoretical possibility, but you know, a history of cash flow generation, good, good, you know, good cash flow conversion. We still prefer businesses with low gearing, and um, and we think that valuation matters. Not not so much, you know, we're not so much a value manager, but we do think that you should be able to value a stock because ultimately you're buying a stream of cash flows, um, and you should have some idea of what you think that's worth today, and, and preferably pay less than. Less than that as um, as entry price, obviously. And if you do those three things, you know, we, you know, you know over time that you'll make good money for clients. What what we've seen, and I'm sure you've, you've observed this too, is that we've got this incredibly odd market now where zero rates. We, we chatted about this before the recording started, but you know, modern monetary theory, zero rates, abundant liquidity. Um, you know, the, the reemergence of retail investors has kind of caused this very odd bifurcation in the market right now, and. What that's leading to is is an incredibly re-rated or slash overrated sector in the in the tech space. Not, not completely all tech space, but you know most companies in fintech, which buy, buy you know biotech is another area. Um, small gold also caught caught the attention of small investors as well. Um, but there was a, you know, we've had this weird situation in the last twelve months where stocks have lost money, lost cash flow, and small cap space have actually materially outperformed stocks that have made cash flow, um, which just is a complete anathema to anyone who's a long-term investor. So, yeah, we think that there's um, actually abundant opportunities to, to go and buy stocks that make good cash flow that are on attractive valuations that have been kind of left behind. Um, generally, they're more cyclical, so people don't want to buy stocks with volatility or cyclicality to earnings. Um, generally, they're not necessarily, necessarily the, the, you know, the, the, the disruptors that people have been chasing right now. Um, 
but because everyone's been chasing, you know, names of very sexy uh, you know, headings or titles or, or fields that they work in, they've kind of been ignoring the fundamentals. And the more people ignore fundamentals, the more opportunity people like us who look at the fundamentals should should in theory have. So, so yeah, I think Matt and I and the rest of the team are actually pretty excited. Um, and we are seeing a lot, of, a lot of opportunities. So our funds are performing well at the moment. And um, we've had a good bounce the last couple of months as, as the market's kind of reliquified in that smaller cap space. And, and people seem to be looking for these, these names. Um, the other thing, to, other thing you got to remember too, Dave, is, is with cash flow comes an ability to leverage the other side of that. So corporations and, and private equity guys who, who look for um, who look for cash flow businesses trading at big discounts as well. Um, sort of finding great opportunities right now in small and micro cap space, and so we're seeing a number of our stocks or stocks near our names getting getting um, receiving a lot of corporate interest. So, so I think um, I think we're actually in for a pretty good period right now. But yeah, I mean that brings up a bunch of stuff there, and perhaps we could talk in the first instance to that sort of macro uh, framework or environment that we're in where you mentioned modern monetary theory and this is sort of rising tide lifts all boats with liquidity in the market a little bit. How do you envisage that? Uh, I mean, I wouldn't have a clue. So, you know, you may not have a clue either, but as to how that might turn and how that, um, you know, might shift investors thinking back into looking for value as opposed to, uh, you know, uh, you know the craziness we're currently experiencing. Do, do you have a view on that? Like, is there a catalyst or anything out there that you think might sort of shift the uh, current investing world that we're in? That, that's like that is the trillion dollar question, frankly. And I think well, um, and you can't answer it, Marcus. Yeah, no, no, no. Why, why, why can't I do that? No, hopeless. Yeah. But I, I mean, I mean. Go back and try and identify the actual catalyst for the, for the crash in '87 or the correction in 2000 with tech stocks. I mean, you, know, you and I know we can probably pinpoint the date, but we don't know exactly what what computer algorithm or, or, or you know what volatility spike caused the whole thing to unravel. Uh, obviously, you know, Lehman's failing in 2008 was a you know, was a catalyst for that, but there was a whole bunch of bricks that kind of were lined up to fall over um, around that that particular event. So. Um, uh, I think I think I'd just say that you know I, I'm not an economist. I, I'm reading like you are a whole bunch of stuff on on what central banks are doing and what it means for the economy and it, what it means for valuations and what it means for businesses. I'd just say that I think whenever you're producing that much that quantity of money, um, I understand your argument about quantity of money versus velocity of money creating creating inflation and creating um, you know working its way through the economy. But I do think that if you're producing that much, that much additional cash flow or that much additional cash and putting it into the marketplace. You are effectively devaluing the value of the face value of dollars um, in some form, whether you call that inflation or, or dollar devaluation is a bit moot, I think. But um, eventually, you'd think people will require high yields to hold long-term bonds, um, especially if the value of them is being effectively deflated by an increasing abundance of dollar bills being printed. And if that happens, um, and, and central banks don't step in to buy them, which I know is happening currently, then then you're going to see rates tick up in the long in the long you know the long end of the curve will tick up a little bit, and that would be uh, I would I would imagine a pretty seismic readjustment of people's expectations and thinkings around the market. Um, what causes all that? I don't know. Will it happen? I don't know. It would seem logical that it will at some stage, um, because the, the problem with what we're doing today is we are creating distortions, not just in valuations in the equity market, but you are creating economic distortions. I mean, people. 
you know, new businesses that are launching and, and, and taking on established businesses are being given free money by by investors and private equity funds to, to get up and compete in fields where they may have no long-term competitive advantage. And that's that's eroding the value of existing incumbents. Um, so, you know, we are creating, a, a, I think, a, a misallocation of resources in the economy as well, potentially, and that, that does have long-term ramifications. Um, so there's a bunch of reasons why why rates should go up long term and why we need you know we need there to be real cost of capital, um, without which we're going to get increasing increasing you know increasing errors in the way money's been allocated around the economy. I think so. Lots of issues in that answer, Dave. Probably not not a very clear answer for you, but I do think um, you know you, you want to be cognizant of of valuations and cash flows and, and, and what you're buying as an investor if you're if you're a small cap investor listening out there. Um, not necessarily chasing momentum right now because those those momentum stocks can, can quickly come undone, and um, there's definitely a lot of a lot of uh, greater fuel theory out there. I think, and in in some of these names where people are just chasing up the stock price because it's going up rather than because it's it's fundamentally a more attractive business long term. Um, so yeah, we, we we you know we're excited by what we're seeing. Um, also cautious on some areas because of those issues, Dave. But um, yeah, if you if you know the answer to that to that um, that catalyst, please let me know because uh, you know, we're still looking for it. Yeah, no problem, Marcus. I'll let you know uh, uh, six months after it's turned up, no, no, along with everyone else. Um, no, I, I, the only comment I would make in and around that is, you know, if you, my read of history and and I don't have any sense of catalyst, but you know that period from 1966 through to 1982 uh, was a broad sideways market uh, in nominal terms, but we had, you know, that's when inflation started to get out of the bag. Uh, and so, you know, if we're going to look for lessons, that may well be a, a you know, a point in history to dig into, but uh, that's just me speculating. No, I agree. Like the only, the only other left field thing I'd say on that is that the economy is shifting to, to services and, and digital consumption. Um and um, you know, in digital land, you can produce more for no cost. Uh, that that's that's the interesting thing about about where we're going, isn't it? I mean, it doesn't cost yeah. it costs zero dollars more for Netflix to produce one more imprint of a digital movie, um, whereas if you have to produce a DVD or or, or uh, you know, some some form of some form of media and send it out, it would be a real cost involved. So, you know, we're we're getting consumption in areas now where there is almost zero marginal cost to produce it, and that that is. Um, that is interesting as well, as in terms of how we consume over time. Yeah, interesting. So, Marcus, maybe we could talk. Uh, just let's get into the weeds now on the small cap stuff. Like you've had, as you mentioned, experience in investing in stocks in illiquid markets uh, all around the world, uh, and obviously in this, you know, micro to small cap space in Australia, there's, I mean, liquidity must be a massive thing to get your head around, like managing risk, managing liquidity risk, and there's a whole range of risk. And maybe that's maybe that's the question is like what are the types of risks that or pitfalls that uh, you know, investing in the small cap space you're most likely to encounter and how do you how do you manage them? Hmm. Okay. Well, it's an interesting question. It's a pretty broad question. Yeah, pretty broad, yeah, no. <laughs> um, okay, let's let's start with liquidity and then unpack the other other risks as well. So I guess liquidity liquidity is um, it, liquidity is a price risk as opposed to a, a business risk. I mean, if you're not buying a leveraged business, whether the share price is up or down, doesn't make that much difference really to the company. It can, it can keep trading true unless it needs to raise money, of course. 
So, you know, we can have market market losses, obviously, if we're buying illiquid businesses. And, um, and so in that, in that case, we, you know, we position size for that. If, if it's a really liquid business, we like it. It can be low weighting in our funds. That doesn't, doesn't do undue damage if it, if it goes down on liquidity reasons only. Um, and, um, and, and also we can take advantage of it. So we can, we've got more space to buy more of it if it goes down and we still like the company. So we, we position size for that. Um, and then look for look for events to get in and out of position. So you know, capital raisings or placements or other company, other other funds trading out of it. We use those those ways of getting our liquidity. We've got excellent traders and who access as you as you know, you know dark pools and and the lit market and a whole bunch of other ways of finding liquidity in those shares. Um, and then more broadly on the risk side, um, you know we we have the philosophy around cash flow I mentioned earlier and balance sheets for that very reason that that, that we we know in smalls and micros that the world turns off every now and then and not just the stock market where you know where where things dis, you know, dislodge um, but also the banking community where you know they they will simultaneously decide that they they want to risk lending to companies in the small cap space uh, if if the economy is going through a challenging period of time or or, or they're too exposed or or whatever it happens to be uh, well they can't raise funding themselves on the, on the other side. And so, with that in mind, we, we, we focus on companies that make good cash flow, so that they need the stock market or the banking, banking finance community to be, to be alive and, and well and trading in order to find liquidity for those businesses. So, we mitigate risk by looking for businesses with their own liquidity internally. You know, with balance sheets are modestly geared. Again, um, it's maybe over conservative, but but then again, during tough times, those stocks always trade better and 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 end up coming out more strongly because they can buy the, the, the you know buy the competitors out. And then fundamentally, the last thing is obviously valuation, which again is not a very sexy word right now. But if you're buying businesses for less than they're worth, assuming you don't make a great mistake on that, then then you know even if the stocks, you know, the stocks go down temporarily, um, you know it's not a major long-term loss for clients or, or for your own capital. Um, you might mark to market lose money, but if you if you can ride out the you know, ride the storm out, you'll, you should make money again. Um, so that's how we really handle risk. We look for also finally on that on that front we do look for businesses that, that don't have exceeding operational leverage and by that I mean you know some businesses have got very thin margins big top line you know, I'm talking think about things like contractors here where you've got a lot of risk going on a lot of people a lot of material being moved around lots of revenue going through for a very very small margin um, and a ton of off balance sheet risk in terms of delivering your contracts for, for example and I'm talking ones like there's heaps of other examples I could use. And so, you know, small deltas in revenue or, or, or margin can make a big difference to your bottom line. So if you have a business or a sector like that, you want to be um, appropriately sizing your um, your exposure um, or, or, or giving a zero exposure if you can find better places to be. So long answer, Dave. Sorry. but, but yeah, that's, No, um, that's cool. Well, it's a big so, question. So, so we, um, yeah, it's, it's a huge thing. A huge focus for us is risk control. Um, yeah. Yeah. But for that very, yeah. in, in large companies, you can you can raise money quickly. You know, if we're if we, you and I are running BHP and we, we we needed to raise money, you know, how easy is it to raise another couple of billion dollars, right? You raise your hands. There's there's tons of liquidity out there. There's big index weights. Um, but when you have none of that stuff around you, it's um it's a lot more challenging. Yeah, well, that's interesting. Uh, you know, it, it definitely um, is a distinction between, as you say, small and uh, large cap investing. Uh, the the other thing around small cap. Uh, investing, you talk about you know you have you're a fundamental, you have a strong fundamental driver in the the the, the reasons for buying a stock. I imagine uh, you know you've had plenty of experience of holding stocks with strong and building fundamental 
you know positive fundamental reasons to own them, but they the the price can linger uh, in certain markets for months or even years. Um, how do you like? Is that something that I mean? I think of that in the context of portfolio construction. Like, is that an issue? Like, do do you need other drivers to get involved in a stock, like momentum, to kind of give it a bit of a tickle, or like, is it? Are you just happy to sit on a stock, uh, provided it's doing the right thing in terms? You know, the internal business is doing the right thing. You're happy to sit on a stock despite the stock market, you know, not really paying much attention. Well, the, the, answer, the short answer to that is we have to be, um, and um, it's one of those uh, one of those challenging things that any, every fund manager deals with at some stage, where you, you think you've got all your ducks lined up, valuation, balance sheet, cash flow, strategy, etc., and it sits there for, for for a long period of time, being ignored by the marketplace. Now, on the plus side, uh, you can use that opportunity to buy more more exposure to the stock if you, if you still like it and there's and you've got money flowing in or whatever and, and and you've had you know stocks or valuations being realised in other parts of your portfolio. On the downside, you know it's frustrating because you're not you're not getting the return you hopefully deserve. So uh, I'd just say that you know if you buy businesses that can accrete shareholder value over time, and this is stating the blindingly obvious, but but if you by business with good good return on capital, and who retain that capital and can reinvest that. Um, that is your Nirvana investment, obviously. Um, but generally, over time, that that is a and is growing its its intrinsic value. And if that doesn't get realised over time, the discount to your assessed fair value is increasing. And so that kind of elastic band of the market is 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 getting more um, more stretched and more powerful. You know, towards the you know equilibrium or you know pulling the share price up to a fair value. Um, if you're buying businesses declining, obviously, then then times your enemy. That's why Buffett says, I'm sure you know, you know, times a friend of a good business, the enemy of a bad. Um, if you have a bad business, it's declining over time, and, and so you need you need a catalyst. Um, so you know, we try to buy quality businesses where where time is our friend. Um, it doesn't always work, obviously, and we course to make some mistakes. Um, but if you are buying a business where time is your friend, then you have to be patient, and and things will eventually work out. Um, but yeah, look, it can be it can be years in some cases, and um, we've got some stocks in our portfolio like that now. We still think they're incredibly cheap, incredibly good businesses, and and have gone through multiple iterations of fixing up what they're doing, and 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 eventually will reward us. And uh, it's funny, just when you're about to lose hope, something comes through usually. Um, but, so often uh, the way. Yeah, I don't I don't have an answer for for the, the old invisible hand. It's uh, it tends to work, but not always. <laughs> so what about you know examples? Or you know, process for managing stocks that actually don't work out. Like, how do you you know in in the small cap space, uh, you know, as you describe BHP, well, not only do they get liquidity from the banks, but there's liquidity in the market as a general rule. Mm-hmm. How do you get out of you know bad positions in a hurry, or if you, or just bad positions, period, um, in in the small cap space? Well. I guess you're trying to get get in those positions in the first place, Dave. That that's a that's a yeah, yeah. you try to avoid going into into things where one you can't get out or two, you know, there's something has gone drastically wrong. And um, but I know it's not a question. I'm just trying to defer what I think about it. I don't know. Well, I mean, it, it is in the context of portfolio construction as well. Like you know, yeah. it, diversification sort of fits into this as well. Like it, you know, might be that because of the nature of being a small cap manager, you have to have a broader diversification, and consequently, when things don't work out, liquidity is not such a big issue. But I mean, I don't, I don't mean to put no, words no, in your no, mouth. No, but no. I'm I think curious. All, all those things are right. I mean, 
you do, you know, we have 45 stocks. I mean, it's, it's, you know, the maximum of 5% anyone stocks. So if we, if we do make a complete mistake with anything, then you're going to cost X percent of your capital rather than, you know, 20% of your business, right? Or 20% of your client's mm-hmm. portfolio. So definitely that helps that, you know, we, we, we try to have strict criteria up front so we don't end up in those positions. But look, but we, of course we have. And, um, yeah. If you want to get out of things, you just got to manage it the best way you can. You, there is always liquidity on the other side at the right at the wrong price. If you want to yeah. get out of something at a very very cheap, big discount, you can find a buyer usually. Um, sometimes that's the right move because you think things are going to deteriorate so much worse from where you know where you are today that you just take take liquidity and, and move on to better ideas. Um, other times you sit there patiently and wait for things to improve. Um, it is actually surprising how. Given enough time in microcap space, things do eventually turn around. Um, you know, businesses get restructured, they 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 re-raise capital, they they bring in new management teams. Um, lots of different ways that you know the positions that you think are, are completely gone or can recycle. And and sometimes people piling out of, out of what they think are errors end up being really good investments as well. So it's it's you know I mean look we've we've made mistakes. I'm not not trying to say we haven't. But we've learned to be patient with with positions, and, and sometimes just ride them out for for a longer period of time than, than you might otherwise uh, think is plausible, or think you'd do as if you're a retail investor, and they usually come good. Other times, you know, you, you do lose money, and we we have lost money in some positions, obviously. Um, but that is that is the, the kind of the you know the, the give and the take with small cap investing, and um, you know we've got to be prepared to make mistakes, or else we'll never we'll never invest people's capital. And and there's plenty of opportunity out there that where you, you know you take what is perceived to be risk and you make incredible returns because things are seen to be risky. So, um, you know, we just stick to the discipline as much as we can. Discuss ideas as a team. Um, you know, work through our combined experience and and hope that on balance we're, we're making more educ you know more correct decisions than wrong ones. Um, but yeah, of course we 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 definitely have those tough periods. Um, and um, they're not they're not they're not happy days. <laughs> No, sure. So, how, how do you um, like? I mean, I if I go through uh, the universe of small cap stocks in the ASX uh, and look at a long price history, what I tend to find is, I mean, it's not just small cap. Like, let's look at the ASX more broadly. But there's a whole lot, like a much higher percentage than not, of stocks that actually go nowhere over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. And and there's a lot of activity. You, you can see in the price charts where stocks might go for a run. They might go, for, you know, three times, you know, 3x or 5x uh, and then fall back, you know, over a period of time. So it almost like in the small cap space, you might call sort of pump and dump type stuff that goes on, um, you know, lots of capital raisings, like things that kind of cause the price just to fall back. Um, how, how do you like? What's the game for you? Is it to find? I mean, silly kind of question, but is it to find you know twenty cent stocks that have got you know a potential five dollar valuation based on what you see inside their business and the tailwinds, et cetera, et cetera, um, or or do you tend to look for stuff that you know if it can go from twenty cents to a dollar based on what you see in the you know shorter to medium term, you're happy to harvest some volatility. Like, what's what's the game for you? And inside of that. You know what sort of percentage profitable ideas do you tend to get? You know, given the 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 return you're looking to generate on a per investment basis. Mm. Wow, Dave, a lot, lot, lot to unpack there as well. I oh, know. I give you all, give you all these. You, long you've asked questions. fifteen questions in one, which is what I do, by the way, when I'm asking management teams questions. So, 
And I'm familiar with the, tech, with the technique. I think, I think, look, <laughs> we would love to find a bunch of 20 cent stocks to go to $5. I mean, you know, I'd be retired by now and, and living in a very large yacht somewhere. Um, ecological yacht, of course, because uh, I'm yeah. what, so green. Not, it's not a stink boat. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so, but uh, as you probably gathered from from the earlier sort of commentary, it's actually more oddly about avoiding massive losers than it is about making massive winners. I mean, yes, I'm looking. We'd love to have you know, ten baggers, twenty baggers, hundred baggers stocks, um, and you know, we're looking for great businesses in the small cap space that, that can you know that can compound for many years, and we've got a, a, you know a bunch of those in our portfolios. But there's a lot that don't fit that that bill, and um, and and they're just ably run, you know, maybe more modest growth companies. But but the key thing for us is not to have too many of those stocks you you defined earlier on that are that are complete losses or or real disasters. Um, you know where they where they, you just you're trying to get out of them and you can't because there's no liquidity and you're driving the stock price down and you have that sickening feeling in your stomach that you've made a huge mistake and you can't correct it. So, you know. With that in mind, we, we we are focused on businesses that they won't give us those surprises, where we can sleep at night time, um, and 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 know that, that that basically we're in good businesses over time will give us an okay, a great return, um, without necessarily looking for the ones that can go up five hundred percent. You know, we'll get some of those anyway because great businesses tend to get re-rated, but it might be over a longer period of time rather than you know a highly speculative gold or highly speculative biotech or, or, or you know fintech stock that's that's really you know it's really fivefold or zero um, based on based on hope and and we don't play those games because we, we know over, over the long run that the 90 percent plus of those kind of ideas are, are the ones that cost you everything um, so it's about avoiding losers and 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 really shifting that probability curve to the right of getting modest to, to great winners uh, I think is as a quick quick summary of that answer. Does that kind of answer your question? I mean, it sounds really boring, but, but what, that, what that means is that many, 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 many stocks in the microcap space don't don't fit the bill for us. Um, yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah. No, well, and that's uh, that 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 makes perfect sense given you know my comments around um, just when you actually go through a whole bunch of price charts. Yeah, you know, the large majority of them actually don't, in the end, go anywhere. It's 2,000, 2,300, 2,400 stocks today, something like that in the ASX, and and, and, and it's just a, a long tail of moribund, you know, um, businesses that exist, but they don't really achieve much, if that makes sense, you know, to your point earlier on. So, um, you know, I, I'm sure there are people who are more informed than us or who, who, who love trading, you know, those stocks for the capital raise or the, or the, the one announcement gets them going, but it's not really... Not really our game, and um, and we find it more profitable to find the ones that are that are compounding away or doing something good in the meantime, uh, or have got good businesses that are being restructured where we see excellent management teams coming in. Um, so, yeah. so and speaking of that, on um, management, like you know, again making that comment about looking at the vast majority of uh, stocks, you know, going sideways to nowhere. Well, someone's making money through that, you know, the, all the fees associated with an ASX listing, someone's making money through all that, but, you know, often it's not the shareholder. Uh, how, how do you tell when you've got good management? Is it, you know, skin in the game? You know, how, how do you, how can you tell when there's, you know, lots of agency risk caked into a stock because, the you know, like, is it any tells, anything obvious that you specifically look for in a management team? Hmm. Well, uh, I mean, uh, you've hit the nail head a little bit there. I mean, some of those, some of those um, some of those obvious tells are you know, excessive salaries, 
tiny ownership in the stock um, or, or options rather than actual equity, um, uh, excessive risk-taking behavior from the management team. So a bit like a, a bit like an investor down that space looking to punt, you know, they're looking to, to you know, find a, a drill hole by excessively drilling into a gold company or they're, they're buying, you know, other companies that don't really have anything but looking for something to, to kind of fill in what, what they don't have or any, any combination of those things will sort of yield some some insight into what they're doing. Um, but business history will give you a lot of answers too, right? How, how's the business traded through cycles? Um, is it well managed? You can tell if it's well managed in terms of, you know, it's, it's, it's marginally stable or reasonable over time. It's, it's, it's taking, is it taking share from its, its competitors? Um, is it innovating enough to create new areas to, to grow into? Um, you know, all, all those all those things give you other software hard this year as to whether a business or a management team is actually doing a reasonable job, I think. And, um, you know, you know, what's that? You know, it's good to be the, a vulnerable no man in this space to just say no to lots of things and, and, and wait till something really good comes along. And um, that's half the battle. Just, it's, just, it's just patience and, and, um, and um, assistance and looking for better ideas. And uh, I think yeah. it, it pays to be fussy, I think, you know, and, and looking for things that, that, that do meet all the things you're looking for and, and not just chasing down things that sound good. You need to be a little, you know, highly skeptical, I think, as an investor. Without being too skeptical, because occasionally you want to find, you know, you need to believe enough to, to pull the trigger on good ideas, but you want to be skeptical around around most of the stuff you hear, because as we both know, you get pitched a lot of a lot of a lot of baloney to use the polite term um, by management teams and, and and brokers alike. Not having got brokers per se, but but um, but they're promoting capital raisings most of the time. So you know, you have to be cautious as an investor on those things. Yeah. Speaking of which, do you, you know. In order to build sort of meaningful stakes in some of these illiquid or you know small cap stocks, uh, do you ever look at pre-IPO stuff inside your fund? Oh, that's a good question. We do, um, we do, but we're conscious of the fact that it's uh, you know you're getting into a very liquid space there, and, and and you you really want to have in our case a really short window to to, to a listing. Um, and, a, and a high degree of confidence that it's um, it's, a, it's a good idea, a good investment opportunity. Um, so I think we've gone for something like three three pre IPOs in our entire career as a as a sort of team at Sphere, not just at Sphere, but with our former life at our, our previous shop. Um, mm-hmm. Where um, you know, that's a, what's that three in, in seven or eight years? So that's that's the kind of frequency with which we approach that space. Pretty regular. Yeah, sure. Uh, and I suppose it all comes down to the same criteria in terms of management team and fitting all your fundamental drivers, and because uh, liquidity at that point, I guess, is uh, that's the big mystery, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Hopefully, come. Marcus. Yeah, mate. I, I'm. I, I found this personally very interesting. Uh, you know, I'm one of those uh, crazy retail guys that invests his own money into uh, Aussie small caps. So you know, I've really valued. Uh, you know, getting your insights in and around all this stuff—it's uh, it's such an interesting part of the market, and and it's so clear to me that you've got to bring great care to it uh, because it's pretty easy to get your fingers burned if you don't know what you're doing. Uh, and it's great to hear you—you know—and you're not just domestic but international experience dealing in you know in all types of markets that can give you a similar experience. Uh, Mate, so thank you so much for taking the time. Now, is there any sort of parting thoughts you've got before we sort of wrap up and get your details? Pleasure, Dave. No, like I've enjoyed enjoyed it myself as well. Thank you. Um, no, I'm uh, 
look, you know, I think it's a great place to be investing in, in, in smalls and micros. If, if you're doing it, you need patience and, and um, time. Um, keep reading, keep learning. I think it's a, it's a, it's a you know, thing I'd say to people, do your own thinking and do your own reading. And uh, eventually, eventually you'll, um, you should get, a, should get a reasonably good outcome. Mm. No, great. So, Marcus, where can people uh, get hold of you if they'd like to be in touch? Well, I'm at um, Sferia, so our major website's www.sferia.com.au, um, or I have a LinkedIn, which people can can hit me up if they if they're keen. Look at, look at Marcus Burns on LinkedIn. Um, I do have Twitter, but I don't actually actually use it, so there's no point sharing that at this stage. No, it's probably safe. I'm a bit the same. I don't have the uh, thick enough skin to go on Twitter into that battleground. It's uh, it's you know, I, I, I'm 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 way too soft. <laughs> you and me both, Dave. <laughs> anyway, I'll uh, I'll link to uh, where where people can get in touch in the show notes. So thanks again, Marcus. Really appreciate your time, and uh, all the best uh, into the next last couple of months of the year. Pleasure, Dave. Enjoyed it. Thank you. That's it for today's episode of Beyond the Obvious. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues. If you'd like to get in touch, please reach out to me on LinkedIn or on my website, davidhobart.com. Until next time, hooray.